Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Back Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Bill Kasdorf. Bill is a partner with the consultancy Publishing Technology Partners, where he and his colleagues provide guidance to companies and service providers in the publishing industry. Bill has particular expertise in standards alignment, accessibility, and a number of other important areas. Bill has received a number of industry awards, including the Distinguished Service Award from the Society for Scholarly Scholarly Publishing. He's also on the steering committee of the W3C Publishing Business Group and chair of the Book Industry Study Group's Content Structure Committee, which we'll be talking about later on in this interview. Bill's also principal of the publishing consultancy Kasdorf & Associates, and his client list includes some names I'm sure our listeners will have heard of, including the Harvard and MIT Scholarly Presses and organizations across a wide range of activities, including the World Bank, the EU, and the British Library. You can follow Bill on Twitter at Bill Kasdorf and learn more about his work at pubtechpartners.com. So thank you, Bill, for being on the Lean Pub Back Matter podcast. Sure. Glad to be here. Thanks for the nice intro. Thanks. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin stories. Um, And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your journey to how you found yourself first involved in book publishing. Well, I sure can tell you about that. I I grew up in Wisconsin and... uh, uh, I, you don't want to hear my real origin story because it involves how I met my wife and how it determined my entire career for the rest of my life. But uh, I, I got into graphics. I was an English major in college. Um, so the, probably the relevant origin story is that uh, I was chair of a – I was very active in the student union at the University of Wisconsin, which is a really active, uh, an unusual group. In fact, I'm still a trustee of that, uh, of that organization. So <clears throat> 50 years later, um, but I chaired the, uh, the literary committee, which brought in the visiting poets and writers, published poetry chapbooks, did a literary magazine, etc. So to do that, I took a typography course uh, so I could do handset type and do cool books and uh, uh, just really got into both publishing, but also the technology of publishing. Right. Like, how how is this actually done? So that's really my origin story. And so um, I've basically been in um, the production side and the vendor side, uh, editing side, et cetera, design, editing, typography, uh, et cetera. And I was really uh, also a real early adopter of a really interested in um, generalized markup schemes, right? Because when I started out, all the tools were proprietary. Nothing worked with anything else, uh, et cetera. And uh, I just thought, that's crazy. There's got to be a better way to do this. So I was really, really early on in that. And so that led to SGML, that led to XML, that led to EPUB, that leads to web publishing, which is what we're working on right now. So that's that's kind of where I got to where I am today. And uh, for those listening who might not be aware, what do you do when you do handset type? Oh, it's actual little chunks of lead that you put in a uh, a little uh, I can't remember what you call it now but anyway, there's a little tool where you just line them up and then you put them in uh, line by line in a in a framework called a chase and then you ink it up and you put it in a press well you put it in the press and then you ink it up and then you it presses paper against the type, and there you go. And how long would it's, it take? It's called letterpress because it's actually pressed into the paper. I'm really curious. How long would it take, for example, to say do the you know the front page of a standard newspaper? Well, first of all, it's done by many people at the same time, uh, so it's not one one person doing that. But uh, if it were one person, wow, hours and hours and hours. 
that's a lot of little letters. Those those were not done hands. I mean that we're talking about the seventeenth, eighteenth century. If we're talking about handset, uh, th- those at the time when they were done from metal, they were done with casting machines called the linotype or the monotype machine, where an operator sitting at a keyboard and it's actually casting a whole line worth of type at a time. So they're they're not making it letter by letter. And you mentioned um, you were early, you had an early interest in markup schemes, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what those are for people listening who might not know. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, one thing that I I actually do a lot of speaking and writing on this subject, and I I always stress that you know people today, for example, get really obsessed about XML, and I'm, I'm known as an evangelist for XML, uh, and I still am. Uh, although there are th- certain technologies that are kind of moving beyond that now. But um, fundamentally, it's about being able to identify what the constituent parts of your content are and then tagging them with um, consistent tags that basically say this is a heading, this is a heading level one versus heading level two. So now I've kind of implying some structure in my in my content. This is a quote. This is a footnote, etc. Well, back in the day, you just made those things up. And in fact, you still do people doing, you know, doing a style sheet in InDesign typically just make up the names of what those styles are or those things. Right. But that's really unproductive because then nobody else knows what they mean. Right. So uh, when I talk about a markup scheme, I'm really talking about something that's a standard that um, enables interoperability. Right. So if I use uh, HTML, to mark up those things. There are millions of people that know what they are. And there are millions of systems that can work with that content. Uh, so, you know, the, that the computer knows that that's a heading and knows that that's a new section that's beginning and knows that this is a quote, uh, knows that this is a link, etc. cetera. Um, and of course that plays right into accessibility. That's why the, the evolution of, uh, of these technologies and the getting more and more interoperable is what uh, ultimately is making content. Where, where we're going with this is is what we, what we call born accessible content, where uh, it used to be that to, to create an accessible file for a, a, a person who was print disabled, for example, like a braille reader or a screen reader or something like that, um, well, I guess predating screen readers, you had to use a very specialized markup that their tools were programmed to interpret, et cetera, and most publishers not only didn't bother, they didn't even know how to do that stuff and just didn't do it. And so very little content was accessible. Now, um, the same technologies that make content accessible to somebody who needs assistive technology are the technologies we're using anyway, like EPUB and HTML. Yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of questions to ask you about accessibility a little later. Um, but, before okay. we, but before we do that, um, I think probably everybody listening nowadays is familiar with what HTML is. This is something yep. you use to write websites. Um, uh, but what's XML? Well, XML is actually a predecessor of HTML. Um, HTML is a vocabulary and a syntax, right? In other words, HTML says... Here's the tag for a section. Here's the tag for an aside. Here's the tag for uh, heading level two, right? It's an H2. Um, it's expressed in angle brackets and um, uses a particular kind of syntax, etc. XML is a level more abstract than that because it's not the vocabulary. It's the way of 
encoding of vocabulary. So um, scholarly uh, publishing, for example, uses an XML model called JATS, Journal Article Tag Suite, or BITS, Book Interchange Tag Suite. Um, that's a whole different set of tags, but they both use the same XML. Um, it's like a meta language, right? It's a, it's a way of expressing a tagging scheme. So DocBook is an XML scheme. Uh, DITA is another XML scheme that's kind of used in technical documentation. There's all kinds of different vocabularies that are written for particular purposes, and they can all be expressed as XML. What that means is that they're machine processable because you not only have the tagged content, but you've got a, what's called a schema or a DTD, a, dig, a document type definition that formally documents, here's what these tags mean and here's how they relate to each other. And here's what you can use here and what you can't use here. So you can't, you can't have a, your DTD, for example, or your schema could say, it, it'll, it'll, it'll beep back at you, in effect, if you've got an H1 followed by an H3, and it'll say, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to have an H2 in there next, et cetera. And what, what were the forces that brought about XML? When, when was it created? It was created actually as uh, from uh, SGML. And actually, when I said that it, it predates HTML, I don't think that's actually correct now that I think about it. SGML is a standard generalized markup language. That came out of work done largely at IBM called the Generalized Markup Language, GML, way back in the day. This goes back to the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and... and um, there was work done in the uh, Association of American Publishers, AAPDTD. There was a, a, a DTD in scholarly publishing called the Major DTD. These, this is back in the SGML era. But SGML got really complicated because, it, frankly, it was too flexible. Remember I told you that with HTML, you got these little angle brackets that, that delimit the, the tags? Yes. With SGML, you can use whatever you want as those delimiters, right? You just have to say what they are. So now, guess what? You've got a mess on your hands if those files are out there and you expect systems to be able to use them. So XML came along, frankly, as a simplification of SGML. It said, no, 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 it has to be angle brackets. You have to nest everything properly. If something is not, I mentioned that you have to have an H2 after an H1 and an H3, H3 after an H2. Um, that's called nesting of this, this one section is nested inside another. That's called well-formedness in XML, and if your content doesn't do that, it's actually not XML. And the other thing is that it uses an encoding scheme of, for, for the characters called Unicode. So an A is universally known as blah, blah, blah value in, in uh, Unicode. So in whatever language or whatever typeface you're using or whatever in XML, you already know, always know when you see that um, sequence – it's an A, or it's a B, or it's a C. And it's, a, it's literally a sequence of zeros and ones that's standardized. They're absolutely right. It's all binary. And Unicode is really encompasses almost all, not all, but almost all the world's languages and scripts. So it's just huge numbers of, uh, of characters are, are in Unicode. Um, I have a question about your story. Um, I didn't. I didn't know that you majored in English, but from English major to English major, who uh, ended up in a technical area. Uh, I'd like to ask you how that happened uh, for you. Well, um, I think going back to my 
my being an English major at the university and being so involved in this literary group and being involved in uh, in publishing things as a part of that. Um, but I'll tell you an interesting anecdote that's kind of a uh, that your question prompts me. Uh, one time, this goes back, oh, it has to go back like 15 years. I remember at a conference sitting around a table at, at, after dinner with, it had to be five or six people that were all um, really leading XML gurus, right? We were all just really involved with XML, et cetera. And as we're talking about our backgrounds, it turned out that all but one of us were English majors. Every one of us but one. And the guy that wasn't an English major, one of the most brilliant people in the industry, his name is Evan Owens, was a musicologist. So people are thinking, oh, these must be all computer science guys. It's like, uh, no, not really. We're all English majors. Yeah, that's great. And so, and so what, for example, what was your first job in publishing? Well, I worked as a uh, proofreader, uh, actually for a music publisher. Um, and I am not expert in music. Uh, so this is an interesting little anecdote for you. I was a really excellent music proofreader because I was I couldn't read the music. Huh. So I didn't know what the note was supposed to be, right? The, the danger in a proofreader is they read what they think is supposed to be there rather than seeing what actually is there. But I have a real eye for detail. And so I could notice things that, wait a minute, that's not the same as that thing, right? And it should be. I had no idea what those things were. So I was, I was also a graphic designer by background, and so uh, that my my boss at the time discovered that I was a talented designer. So I got designing things, and then ultimately, you know, we bought typesetting equipment really really early on, and in, in when when that was all going electronic, and ultimately I ended up uh, running my own company for many years. I ran a, a publishing, edit, design, editing, and publish and type typesetting publishing services firm. And was that Impressions Book and Journal Services? Yeah. How'd you know about that? LinkedIn. Oh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that that was in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's there, and I was very curious about it and wanted to ask you, so uh, that's how I could guess. That's, um, that's what it is, yeah. And did you, so part of that name is Journal Services, and I know that you've got quite an extensive background in scholarly publishing. Yeah. Um, and th these kinds of high level questions are kind of hard to get right. But how have things changed in the last, say, 20 years in the scholarly publishing space? Complete transformation, basically. The, the scholarly journals were one of the first sectors of publishing to move away from print and to move uh, online. Now, um, admittedly, they were doing that with PDFs, not with HTML websites at first, but um, uh, so what used to be very uh, traditional publishing workflows and practices that were designed around print workflows, a lot of paper editors marking up papers with red pencils, uh, typesetters retyping the content that they got from the, the you know the, the the author sends a manuscript in as a as a stack of paper. And then it gets edited, so it gets all marked up, and then that gets shipped off to, to the typesetter, and, and they sit down at a keyboard on some other kind of machine and type it all in again, and then somebody has to proofread it, blah, blah, blah. All of that work became electronic. So, you know, word processors came along. It's like, hey, we can use these word files. Guess what? We can, can actually edit with the word file. Now we can transform that word file. Actually, the word file now actually is XML under the hood. So when you're, if you've got a word file, you've actually got an XML file right there. Um, 
and that can feed into a production technology that um, produces a PDF, but it also can produce uh, HTML for online, or it can produce an EPUB. EPUB is not used much in scholarly yet, uh, except potentially for um, scholarly monographs. A lot of university presses do EPUBs. But journals, which are the majority of scholarly uh, work, scholarly literature is journal work, uh, those are single documents typically. So they're either online uh, website, uh, a web page, or they're a PDF. But, um, and of course, the other big change is uh, my focus is publishing technology. So that's really what the perspective that I'm coming from. If you're asking me, how journal publishing has changed, the business side is dramatically different too because there is this rise of, you know, originally scholarly societies would publish journals in their in their specialty, right? Uh, gradually, more and more of that got taken over by big commercial publishers and then there was a pushback on that and now there's a big trend toward open access, uh, which means that uh, the cost of uh, production of the published work is actually done up front by what are called author processing, article processing charges, APCs, and then the uh, resulting content is freely available on the, on the internet um, I've got, rather I've than got, being behind a subscription paywall. So that's a big change too. <clears throat> there's um, so much to talk about in this area. Um, I saw a talk you gave on YouTube. Um, well, you didn't give it on YouTube. I found it on YouTube. Um, oh, I did, which, I'm not even aware of those things being out there. Every now and then somebody says that, I think, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, there are there are a few. Um, okay. uh, often from, from conferences where you've spoken, people have recorded them and uploaded them. Um, and in one of these talks, uh, you describe how the kind of inherent requirements or characteristics of scholarly publishing uh, led it to have kind of quite advanced standardization compared to things like magazines and newspapers. Um, right. in, in particular, the requirement in scholarly publishing for things like citation. Um, you, need to, you need to know what's being referenced. That needs to be a thing that needs to be identifiable. Um, and I was very curious. I hadn't, I'd, I'd thought about that a little bit before for having a little bit of a scholarly background myself, but I hadn't thought about how, you know, the Associated Press puts out 250,000 new sort of things a day. Uh, yes. And, and needs oh, you're one of the few people that rights. know that statistic. That's uh, I, I quote that all the time. It blows people away. Well, that's that's where I got it from. <laughs> I, I, oh, I, sorry. I, I, confess, <laughs> I confess I didn't know it independently. Uh, yeah. But it's but it's really amazing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how that how that works in scholarly publishing. What are the sort of details of how things are defined? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you know, this is really why interoperability is such an important issue and why standards are so important, as as you started out saying. Um, so let me just give you an example. The citation is a is a real driver in uh, in scholarly, obviously, because for a couple of reasons. First of all, a typical scholarly journal article will have dozens or maybe even hundreds of references at the end, right? Um, each one of those points to an article published somewhere by some publisher. Well, back in the day, those were all behind paywalls. So unless you you were at a university and your library subscribed to that journal that that article was in, it was very difficult for you to actually get to that uh, article. Um, another thing that uh, characterizes uh, scholarly publishing, and again, this kind of thing happened by necessity, but it's a really, uh, at, in the end, an altruistic thing, is that you know instead of some commercial entity saying, we're going to build a solution here and control this process, right? Um, 
the publishers realized that no one publisher could, in fact, own and control the process of doing this interlinking between pub published content all over the world. So a group of uh, the leading scholarly publishers, which are were and are fierce competitors with each other, banded together, created an organization called Crossref, and used a technology that was just then being developed called the DOI, the Digital Object Identifier, to build uh, an infrastructure, basically, that provided this kind of interlinking between uh, citations and the articles being cited. Uh, and it's completely indispensable to scholarly publishing now. You, if, if your article doesn't have a DOI and isn't in the Crossref system, it's invisible. So basically, the DOI is a, a, it's a dumb number. It's just an identifier. It's a unique identifier that is associated with a particular article. And um, that's, that unique identifier is what enables a system to, uh, it, in the Crossref system, there's a ton of metadata associated with that identifier. Who's the publisher? Who are the authors? Who's the corresponding author? When was it published? What, article, what issue? What page? Blah, blah, blah. Um, all that the system knows so that uh, it's able to disambiguate things. And now we've got identifiers for people, too. The ORCID is a contributor identifier. So, you know, there are a heck of a lot of Mary Smiths in the scholarly publishing world, right? So just saying this article, Mary Smith is a contributor to this, uh, uh, is um, is a huge problem for, for publishers and libraries uh, because they need to know which Mary Smith. Well, now I have an ORCID. It's on, in my email signature. I'm not a scholar. I just like promoting this. So I've got an ORCID and it's in my it's in my SIG. And now there's a new standard called the credit, which will even say, what was this contributor's contribution to this article? Because sometimes there's, you know, a dozen different authors listed. Well, one of one or two of them might have been the main researchers. One of them might have been a translator or something, or one of them might have been a tester. Now you can actually say, what did they do? All of this is based on the fact that there's a, a community that comes together to agree on a standard and say, okay, we'll use the system and we'll all use it. Nobody owns it. That's really cool. It, it's that is that is really cool. It's so it's so interesting too how the kind of the the problems multiply because in addition now to things like I mean so far we've kind of mostly talked about attribution uh, of of author and publisher and contributor, but then there's the question of rights. Um, yes, and you talk in one of your in one of your talks about how a, a textbook chapter, you know, in, in, if it's also got just sort of an interactive kind of element to it as well because it can exist in multiple formats at once. A, a single chapter of a textbook might have multiple contributors and including students. It might have a picture or pictures. It might have video. It might have clips from an interview from the BBC. It can have any number of things. And so how, how, how is the industry, how, how has the industry tackled the attempt to sort of standardize the, um, and automate, I suppose, rights allocation? Yeah. The, the answer is, how is the industry dealing with this? Because it's not past tense. It's a work in process, right? Okay. But, um, the really the pioneering work on this was done in the news industry for that reason that you mentioned that you know the AP for example creating quarter of a million assets a day 150,000 of those are text assets and 100,000 are image assets and you cannot process the rights manually for that kind of a fire hose of content so they developed a, a specification called rights ml 
it became part of a group within the the W3C, a community group, that developed a a markup scheme called the Open Digital Rights Language, ODRL. That was kind of an informal standard that was used by uh, the news industry organization called the IPTC, which I'm also a member of the International Press Telecommunications Council. Um, They were instrumental in helping contribute to this work on rights. Um, And now it's actually an official formal W3C recommendation, the ODRL, the Open Digital Rights Language. And this, again, provides a standard way to express things like a rights holder, um, uh, obligations associated with it, with a piece of content. So you can use this image, but it has to have this credit line adjacent to it. Or you can... You can put this article on your website, but not before September 15th, 2018, uh, an embargo or something like that. All the kinds of things that you have to manage with, or you have to pay me a hundred bucks, right? What All that stuff, all the things you need to express about rights, uh, ODRL provides a framework. And then the news industry has developed on top of that framework, RightsML, which addresses what the news industry needs to express about rights. <clears throat> and I've been trying to kind of socialize this. In other words, make other industries aware of this development because the trade book industry doesn't need to express rights in the same way the news industry does. Uh, media uh, is actually ahead of the book publishing industry in, in doing this. I have a colleague in Publishing Technology Partners, uh, Bill Rosenblatt, who's been one of the leaders in this uh, in this whole rights area, is one of the leaders in the rights area. And um, so anyway, different sectors and different players um, can make progress on something because it's a necessity to them. And it turns out to be useful to everybody else. That's really a cool dynamic. Um, This is a bit of a sideways question. But speaking of your colleagues, um, I interviewed uh, Thad McElroy for this podcast uh, quite some time time ago now, I think. Um, And and he had a wonderful story about um, being, I think, one of the first people to sort of fully create a published book using desktop publishing tools. He was way ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. he has this great story about how Apple called him. You know, because they found out they're like, you. How did you pull this off, basically? Um, and uh, yeah. And, and anyway, I've got. I just got this funny joke about my brother and I have this joke that there's a you know an infinite number of ways you can divide the world up into two types of people. And one of those divisions is people who were sort of carrying on in their careers, and then a computer was dropped on their desk, and they were like, oh my god, it's the end of civilization. <laughs> and, and there are other people who are like, you know, this is the, the we're now, they saw themselves in the origins of prehistory at last. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was your first experience with, with that type of technology? And how did you respond to it, if you can re- recall? Oh, I definitely can recall. So I mentioned that early in my career, I was with a small publishing company that kind of, because I, I was in, interested in getting into the technology, we actually got uh, typesetting. So we, we actually had get this, you will laugh at this, we had a word processing machine, right? It was called a Redactron. It was about as big as a washing machine. And it would record your keystrokes on magnetic tape, cassette tapes. And then there was a typesetting technology from a company called Mergenthaler Linotype uh, and, and others, Copygraphic was another one, where um, it would actually typeset uh, from those digital files and it, originally it was phototype setting, which was exposed with uh, – it was actual film exposed from 
by light, uh, and then it became digital. So anyway, long story short, is that this became a very specialized, is very expensive. Um, fast forward to when I had my own company, um, you know, we would get, I would get a new version of the typesetting system that we used, and I'd get a couple of workstations, and they would cost me forty thousand dollars a pop, and you know, very specialized uh, tools, but did just beautiful typography, very sophisticated, right? So along comes desktop publishing. I remember there was a consultant in the field back then, Jack something. Thad would remember his name. And I remember him saying, oh, this desktop publishing, it's a flash in the pan. This is just crap. You know, it's just it, it produces, uh, you know, uh, hostage note uh, typography. Uh, it's not a real professional tool. Well, guess what? It caught up. And then pretty soon. Everybody was using InDesign and Quark and those big expensive typesetting systems that we'd inf invested a million bucks in were kind of out of date. The, so they still are used. So, for example, a lot of journals are produced by those high-end systems because they're just incredibly fast and incredibly automated. But um, So it sounds like you were excited to embrace the new technology as soon as it became available to you. I was excited, but I was also scared as I could be because I was an entrepreneur, you know, I was a small business person. And it's like, man, if people can just do this themselves in their dining room, uh, is my business going to fall apart? But of course, that is why I've always kept up with technology, right? You can't just sit there doing what you're doing. You'll be left in the dust. So... Yeah, you're reminded that that's that's a great story. Thank you for that. Um, you're you're reminding me, uh, you know, when when you bring up the consultant who's like, "This is a fad," you know, which of course people said about TV. Um, uh, and uh, there are to this day people who say that about eBooks. Right. What was your when when you were first introduced to the? I mean, I know it would have come in kind of stages through various types of devices, but when when you first encountered an eBook on an eBook device, what 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 did you think about that? Well, first of all, I thought it was the future. And back when I had my company, um, I, I basically gave two of my employees a lot of support in getting involved with the development of the early standards. Um, it was called OEB, the Open eBook Standard, which was the predecessor to EPUB. And um, and again, it was because I was I've just always been devoted to standardization of things, right? Because it it, it just makes everything work better. Um, so. Um, this was this was pre Kindle, right? Two thousand seven, when the Kindle came along, was a watershed because now suddenly, uh, it was really a mass market thing. Before that, it was like kind of a Tower of Babel. There were lots of different reading ebook e e reading systems, but they were all proprietary and they all worked differently. So, Kindle is proprietary, but at that time, when the EPUB standard came along. Pretty much all reading systems except Kindle uh, came to to uh, basically be able to work with EPUBs natively. And even to this day, uh, even though Kindle is stubbornly not in EPUB, um, the format that Amazon wants you to submit your content in is EPUB. What, what that means is that uh, a publisher can create one file that they can send out to all these different uh, different reading systems, aggregators, uh, retailers, etc., 
and that one file can be used by all of them. It's not used the same way by all of them, right? They all have their their bells and whistles. They'll do things differently. Apple, for example, was the one of the first ones that if you properly tagged a footnote as a footnote, they would do it as a pop-up. And that was very cool because you used to have to lose your place in the content to get to a footnote, and then you had a hard time finding your way back to where you were. And they just made it pop up. So the reason I bring that up is that this kind of standardization does not squelch innovation. It enables innovation. You know, it's really uh, researching for this interview. I thought a lot about standardization in ways I hadn't uh, in the past. Um, it's really fascinating. And so I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit here. But, um, you know, there's there's not just a difference in degree, but a difference in kind when there's more than one standard for things, when there's these multiple ways that you have to kind of do things. Right. And, and do you so do you think that Amazon will always keep its Mobi format or do you think that they they might someday acquiesce? I have. Uh, I have, I was going to say confidence. I should probably say optimism. Uh, but yes, I think they're moving in that direction. Uh, the fact that they now prefer to ingest EPUB 3 as the best format to provide them content is, is a good sign. Uh, they actually have a big commitment to accessibility, which really depends on EPUB 3. So, uh, and EPUB 3, EPUB is just becoming more and more pervasive. So, for example, the latest version of the Edge browser will just open an EPUB. You don't have to have a separate EPUB reader. It'll just open it up like you can open up a PDF. That's pretty important development. So I'm really looking forward to asking you some questions about EPUB in a moment. Um, hey. uh, but before we do that, you had a recent article published in Publishers Weekly in which you say you have a story about meeting Jeff Bezos at, I think, the Library of Congress back in the day when he was pitching this wild idea to use the Internet to sell books. That's right. And I was yeah. wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that story. Well, it, you know, it was a um, it was a conference that, oh, what was her name? Jane something. Sorry, I'm, I should remember. Uh, she was at the Library of Congress. But she was actually at a university in the D.C. area and worked with the Library of Congress to do this publishing uh, conference every year in the spring. And I spoke at it a number, a number of years. And one of those years, she brought in this guy named Jeff Bezos to be you know, like a keynote speaker or one of the speakers. And he was a really dynamite guy. He was an outsider, right? He was not from publishing. And this is another interesting observation that oftentimes – the best innovations come from people that are not already embedded in the system because sometimes you can't see outside of your context when you're so embedded. He was, I think, he was an investment banker, I think, by background yes. and an entrepreneur. Um, and he just, you know, saw this technology and just saw the potential of it. And, of course, he is driven kind of personality, right? So part of it, you need to be smart enough to see these things, but part of it, you need to have the personality that can actually make it happen because lots of people have lots of good ideas that never actually go anywhere. So anyway, he, he had the, uh, the audacity, uh, and he made a lot of en enemies in publishing, but, you know, before they loved him, they hated him. I think it's a good way to put it because he, he upended the whole book retailing, uh, ecosystem. Well, I think he might, um, still be hated in some quarters. Um, oh, yeah. You may, oh, for sure. You may have yeah. seen the news recently that um, a book that a 
an author published through Amazon's Create Space service was put on the uh, nominated list of books for a, a literary prize in France. And a group of people representing bookstores and the book industry in France got together to protest against this, um, saying that by by there's some technicalities involved in this, but essentially they would have to buy books from Create Space to put them in their store to sell them. Um, and they characterized this as forcing bookstore owners to contribute to their own demise right. by, by feeding Amazon's bottom line. Uh, at, just at a high level, what's your take? Is, is Amazon a force for good in the book uh, world? Um, well, first of all, thank you for that anecdote. I had not heard that story. And of course, one thing, I, I'm not sure what kind of reach your audience has. So if people are not familiar with uh, France, the book selling uh, sector in France is very, very different from the U.S. Uh, the, the government actively protects bookstores, uh, actively mandates that all the books have to be sold at the same price. Uh, it's a very, very different environment uh, than it is here. But um, uh, and of course, you know, we're in publishing, right? We're all about books. But they were just a stepping stone for Jeff Bezos, right? He sells diapers now, right? He sells anything. So it was just that book that that was part of his brilliance. He just he just thought, well, wait a minute, books are easily available, easily packed and shipped, easily identified. There's a ton of them. It's like I'll start out just selling those, right? But he always intended to sell everything, right? So um, I think in terms of. Uh, I'm not. A, I, I, I have a strong resistance to binaries, right? So to say, is he a force for good, yes or no, uh, is something that's very hard for me to respond to. But to say, what good has he done? I can say he has really uh, made a very uh, tradition-bound and uh, stodgy industry suddenly sit up and rethink how they do what they're doing. Uh, and... Uh, and modernize workflows and book selling. Um, it is still true that for trade books, um, the trade book industry is still very dependent on Amazon. So uh, he's been, uh, as, as Amazon, I shouldn't say he, Amazon has a reputation for, you know, playing hardball and uh, really, you know, being an unfortunately dominant force that has way too much power in the industry. But on the other hand, um, <clears throat> some of the, uh, the innovations uh, and, uh, and developments and, and making publishers uh, respond to this new environment uh, are, are very good things. You mentioned my colleague Thad. One of the things Thad is really a specialist in is metadata and optimizing metadata. And um, you know, if you're a trade book publisher, uh, optimizing your metadata so that you can sell more books is always an important uh, goal. And most publishers don't do that very well. But the reality is they mainly want to sell them on Amazon because that's mainly where people are buying them these days. Right. Yeah. That's and we're not talking about ebooks necessarily. We're talking about print books. It's just we're talking about divers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. That's that's where all the eyeballs are, um, yeah. and and even if you're in other places, you you kind of need to be there too. 
Um, yeah. Before, well, and it, it means that people that aren't in that space still are influenced by that whole development, right? So, like the work that you do uh, at Leanpub, yeah. You know, you you've got a very uh, advanced platform and distribution model, etc. But I mean, I we just met obviously virtually. And uh, so I don't know a lot about your background, but looking at your website, I would say that, you know, had Amazon not come along, I wonder if LeanPub would exist. You know, if it, it, it's it, it, they 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 altered the environment so something innovative like what you're doing can uh, can have a real compelling place in it. Oh, right? oh, big for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, LeanPub was um, founded in um, 2010. You know, and the Kindle had already been around for three whole years by then. Right. Um, I think, you know, it was, I mean, definitely, the, you know, it's interesting, you know, I haven't been around all that long, you know, but, um, uh, you know, even just in the last eight years, um, the normalization of uh, ebooks in particular, and even the normalization of people's understanding of the internet and computers has changed, you know, noticeably. Yep. We don't we just don't get the same kinds of questions that we used to get from people. People know how this stuff works and they know what it is. That's uh, really interesting. It's it's you know, it's maybe once every six months that we get someone complaining about wanting a real book. Um that that used to be more common. Um people see ebooks as real books now. Um yeah. uh you know, it's uh it's and they know how they work. They know how to get things on their Kindle. That's something that we, we used to have to do a lot of work to convey to people. Uh, now, it's not so much that everybody knows, but when we, po when we point them to instructions, they have the vocabulary already to understand those instructions. Right. And, and you know, 100% without Amazon having introduced the Kindle and having really put its weight behind ebooks, the world we live in, I think, would be very different right That's now. That's right. And, you know, another thing that that makes me think of is that, you know, I told you that I'm, I'm uh, very distrustful of binaries, right? So there are different kinds of books. There are different kinds of markets. So trade, you know, that's kind of plateaued at about, what, 10, 15% maybe at best uh, e-books, and it's been there for quite a while. But I noticed on your website you publish a lot of technical books, right? Uh, and those people don't want print, you know? The, and... Uh, academic uh, books, libraries, you know, we talked about journals going electronic long ago, but now in terms of scholarly books, that's moving in that direction too. So yeah, university presses love beautifully typeset and beautifully printed books that they sell two or 300 copies of, but libraries increasingly don't want the physical book. They, and it also depends on the nature of the book because there are a lot of books that aren't me meant to be read, they're meant to be consulted, right? That's a whole different thing. Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a lot I could say about that. Um, uh, I bet. <laughs> one, one, one thing, um, uh, I actually, you reminded me when you brought up libraries just now. Um, I think that it's easy for those of us who aren't in the standards world to not understand how difficult it is to set and implement standards and how important they are. And one one example of that, I mean, well, you know, the fact that knock on wood, the building I'm standing in right now isn't falling down around me is because of standards. Um, uh, one of my customers, by the way, one of my, I did a lot of work for the International Code Council. That's who makes those building code standards. Great, great. Yeah. That, that, I mean, yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, it's so interesting to, you know, know that the, the breadth of this, this, this. Just walking up a set of stairs 
it doesn't occur to you that the, that the stairs won't be evenly spaced and that they'll be about this much to, from one step to the next. That's a standard. Yeah, and, and, and sort of realizing that, like engineering, standardization is its own profession, which, I mean, to you would be not news. Um, no, to but... A lot, but to a lot of other people, the idea that it's actually a category of activity and that it can apply to basically anything and that the reason our world works, you know, as, as well and as poorly as it does is because of people getting together with this set of ideas that's evolved over time, uh, you know, and, and you know, presumably really got going in our contemporary world with the enlightenment and things like standardization of, but standardization of weights and measures, of course, is an ancient thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and exists in all kinds of cultures that, you know, developed it in as an idea independently of each other, but maybe zeroing in specifically on libraries. So I remember back in the day um, when laser discs were a thing. Um, yeah. And I only know this sort of from the outside, but from what I heard around the universities was that uh, everybody, you know, was in, or a lot of people were investing a lot of money and time in laser, getting all the their data onto laser discs. And of course, that didn't last. Um, and the I particularly with libraries, I'm going to sort of set them out like they're they're and particularly in the scholarly world, they play a profound role in our societies of preserving things. Yep. Um, how has that requirement uh, affected discussions in the past about e-publication standardization? Huge issue. Uh, you mentioned that I uh, did some work with the British Library. Uh, it was actually exactly on that subject because uh, <clears throat> at the time, uh, well, the British Library has always been basically the, the depository of published content by British authors, right? Just like the Library of Congress for us. All, all published books that get copyrighted are supposed to be sent to the Library of Congress and they keep them, right? They preserve them. Well, preserving print books is one thing. What happens if there is no physical object, right? So uh, what I worked with the BL on was uh, analyzing the kind of e-journal landscape because that was right when uh, the, it, it was kind of an inflection point where it wasn't just that journal publishers were grudgingly offering a, a digital file in addition to the print and we're suddenly saying you know we don't need this print anymore we just want to send the digital file and the library is saying good because we don't have room for all this print we just want the digital file but now how do we preserve this because you know i was going to make a comment and i i, I want to come back to this but one misconception people have about standards is that they're stable <laughs> right <laughs> they actually change constantly right so um, no, we don't use laser discs anymore, but the file formats change, right? So even now in the W3C, we're about to bring out a, a, a new version of EPUB called EPUB 3.2. And the main driver of that is that when we came out with 3.1, there were some big improvements and simplifications that we made about the, the standard beyond the EPUB 3.0.1 that was the previous uh, version. But it was not backwards compatible with that previous version. Well, that was a problem because now there's all these older EPUB 3s out there and you've, uh, any reading system now has to deal with two different kinds of specs at the same time. So EPUB 3.2 captures the, the innovations in 3.1 but pr presents them in a way that is, in fact, backwards compatible with 3.0.1. Um, so... 
and, and I mentioned being involved in these standards organizations, th th things like ASME, which is engineering standards, or ICC, which is the building code standards, you know, they are constantly in flux. The, the boiler code for the ASME has something like 3,500 engineers around the world constantly working on that standard. Uh, most of these standards go through typically like a three-year revision cycle, um, and it, it, and it's because things come up, and uh, they have to address things that, on the one hand, address some new issue that's come up, but don't break what's come before, right? So anyway, um, I got I got myself off on a tangent there, but I thought it was an interesting tangent. <laughs> it is, it is, it is actually. One thing I wanted to ask about was um, just a little bit of a if you could describe, you know, how EPUB three is managed, um, and maybe maybe explain actually just explain what it is. Um, and, yeah. And and because there's an entire organization behind it. That's right. Well, first of all, EPUB standard for many years was governed by the IDPF, which is the International Digital Publishing Forum, uh, which um, basically the successor to the Open eBook Forum that made OEB became IDPF. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, or was, uh, a membership organization that publishing companies, technology companies, et cetera, would join, would band together and send people to these working groups to work out the standards. And most of them are very, very consensus driven, right? So it's not a matter of there's two p possible ways of accomplishing X, right? Which way do we decide we're going to do? It's not just a matter that, you know, there's 30 people in the room and 16 of them vote for one and 14 of them vote for the other. And so the 16 win, right? That's not how it works. They, they have to talk about the merits of way A versus way B and ultimately come to consensus on it before it gets, uh, it gets put into the standard. So anyway, what was happening, the ebook standard, basically EPUB standard, um, creates a single file. So many people think it's just a file because it's a .epub file, right? But it's really a package that contains a whole bunch of content documents, typically chapters in a book, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's got fonts. It's got images. It may even have videos or it may connect to streaming video. It's got a lot of metadata, et cetera. That whole package is is what is actually an ebook, right? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> that standard over the years has gotten more and more completely aligned with with open web technologies, the open web standards of the W3C. And at the same time, the W3C um, realized that as sophisticated as the web technologies have gotten, they really don't handle what is a true publication, uh, right? Web page is not the same as a complex publication. It's a thing, and it can link to lots of other things, but those other things it's linking to aren't part of it. They're external to it. Whereas a publication packages everything up and everything is then that has an identity, right? So they were realizing that they needed to begin work in the W3C to address this issue. And so here we had the situation where two separate bodies 
were potentially working on the same thing and might come up with two competing standards, which would have been a disaster for the industry. If I can just just jump in for a moment, we've talked about the W3C a bit, and I just wanted to mention for anyone listening, this is like the World Wide Web Consortium. That's why W3, that's a very important organization. Yes, they govern XML, HTML, CSS, all all the standards, hundreds of standards that are involved in... uh, uh, in, in the web world today. <clears throat> so about a couple of years ago, give and take a few months, uh, the um, IDPF became part of the W3C. So all that work is now happening within the W3C. And there are three uh, components of the organization, if you will, um, under the umbrella publishing at W3C. One of them is a publishing business group, and that's an advisory group, the non-technical people, that is responsible for communicating the needs of the publishing industry to the W3C so that, um, uh, and, and again, we're not just talking about books, but scholarly publishing, educational publishing, technical publishing, all, all those kinds of things. Uh, and then uh, there is the uh, web publishing working group, which is uh, working on this n- vision of a web publication uh, and the, the, the vision there, and it's actually more than a vision because the work has gone, gone ahead quite, quite robustly on this, that right now you can either have a web page or you can have an EPUB, but they're not the same thing, right? <clears throat> what we want is to be able to have <clears throat> a publication that either just lives on the web and is online or is packaged and can be used offline uh, or is cached, for example, Uh, So technically it's offline, but it's not packaged. Getting into the technical weeds there. But the idea is it's just one thing. And and why that's so important is that for a publisher, it's like this would be nirvana, right? That you could produce this one file that somebody can just open up in a browser. They can open a reading system. They can put it, store it on the hard drive. They can store it in iCloud if they want or whatever. Uh, uh, But um, and it just works in any of these contexts. The that group is it's called a working group, and they publish the official standards that are called recommendations in the W3C. So this web publishing recommendation is due to be published at least its first incarnation in about another year and change. But along with that, they're also chartered with. specking a packaged web publication. Um, and they're also chartered with specking EPUB 4, which is the next generation of EPUB, which will be a type of web publication. And the example I usually give to people, and again, keep in mind, I'm speculating, I'm involved in these working groups, but the work is ongoing, right? So the decisions haven't been made. But typically, web publishing wants to use any technology that's a valid web technology, right? So there are a number of different packaging methods that are valid web ways of packaging stuff. Probably a packaged web publication will use any of any of those, whichever one you want to use. Well, for something like the book supply chain or the publishing supply chain, that's, again, we're, we're back into the messy unpredictability that we had back in SGML that I was talking about. The supply chain wants to know that it's packaged this way 
right now an EPUB is packaged as a zip file. That a dot EPUB is really just a zip file, a zip package. So what that means is if you get one of those things and, and you need to unpack it, you know exactly how to do that. So, uh, and then the third group within the W3C is the EPUB3 community group. Uh, that's a group that is charged with maintaining EPUB3. So yes, e EPUB4 will, will be you know, aligned with this, this web publication right, et cetera, but we've got now a well-established big ecosystem using EPUB3 so we don't want to pull the rug out from under that. Yeah, that's actually so, really, sorry to stop you there, but um, uh, I think it's, it's a good moment to reflect upon the how sort of historically contingent the success of EPUB3 actually is. Um, in one of your talks, you uh, mentioned that there was a problem I, when EPUB3, I think, was first uh, announced, which was yep. that people would complain, oh, but there are no tools to use it with yet. Right. And you're like, well, that's because it's a new standard and Correct. you want to have the standard before the tools. Right. Um, but it creates this inherent kind of paradox to actually having a standard be adopted. Um, yep. And I guess, I guess just for, for, from someone who would know, I mean, what was it like when you heard that Apple was going to use EPUB for iBooks? Apple was on the working group that oh, they created oh, okay. EPUB standard. Yes. Okay. I, I have a lot of, even though they are as secretive as Amazon, uh, they play all their cards very close to the chest. It's very hard to get an Apple employee to talk publicly about anything they're doing. Uh, back when EPUB was being created in the first place, uh, they were a very major contributor to it. And one example uh, that I always like to cite is that we were working on a spec for um, synchronizing text and spoken audio, right? Uh, that's really important for accessibility. And in fact, the technology that does that comes out of the accessibility world. Um, so that was being worked on as part of the discussion of the, uh, of the EPUB spec. And then Apple brought out uh, iBooks with Read Aloud. And it's like, so your first thought would be, oh, damn it. They, you know, now there's this, this commercial standard that's proprietary. Well, it turns out that they basically used exactly the spec that became uh, media overlays in EPUB. So they, they were a good corporate citizen in that. They did it the right way. They knew where, what the spec would be. It's just that they came out ahead of the spec in that case. And that brings up another really interesting dynamic when IDPF became part of the W3C. Because this problem that you cite is a, is a real problem. And another aspect of this problem is that there are things, have been things over the years in the EPUB spec that have never been implemented, right? There have been things that everybody thought this is a really great idea. We'll put this in the spec and then nothing ever happens with it, right? And now what have we got to do, right? The W3C takes the opposite approach. A spec is not final unless you can demonstrate I think it's two independent implementations of every feature in your spec. And at the time of balloting, when it gets to that late stage of voting on whether to make it uh, a spec or not, I'm the BISG's representative to the W3C, so I actually get to vote on these things. Um, if before it gets to that last balloting stage, there's this, this stage where uh, implementations are being invited and sought, actually, and if it turns out that a particular feature of the spec has not been implemented, and it has to be two independent implementations, it can't be two variants of the same implementation, 
it can't be in the spec. That, the spec gets revised and to get that, that gets pulled out of the spec. So once it reaches this final recommendation stage, everything in there has been implemented somewhere. That does two things. It demonstrates that it can be implemented, right? So that it, we haven't spec something that's just impossible to achieve. But the other more subtle thing is that somebody thought it was worth the trouble to implement the darn thing, right? So it, it, it demonstrates possibility viability and it demonstrates interest uh, so so anyway I, I think those of us involved view this as a very positive uh, consequence of, of now being part of the W3C is there's much less danger of things getting in the spec and now the technology out there just doesn't catch up with it now does it mean all technology implements it all right away well of course not some people will never implement XYZ features right so even something as basic as, you know, well, the read aloud, right? The media overlays. Not every system can do that, but there are a lot of systems that can. Um, uh, yeah, thanks very much for that great story. It's it's really um it's really interesting to hear uh, how the sausage is made. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry for the cliche, but um, no, uh, it is really interesting, and it, it's it's just it's just also a good reminder to understand that you know behind every technology is a lot of people. Uh, right. Getting in fights, taking initiative, uh, being concerned. Um, and on that note, I actually wanted to uh, I mean, I, I could I think we could probably I'm getting the impression we could probably talk for a few hours about these kinds of things. We, could, we, should, yes. we should probably move on um, okay. because I definitely want to talk to you about accessibility. Uh, yes. But before going on to there, just a, as a sort of bridge, um, today happens to be the International Day Against DRM or Digital Rights Management for those listening who might not know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this this event. It happens every year. Uh, it's put on by a sort of an organization, a pretty small organization, but we like them. Um, and uh, just generally speaking, so for those for those listening, digital rights management, this, it can mean a lot of different things. One thing, one form it can take is you can't access, you can't just, someone can't just send you a file and you can open it. You've got to have some kind of key, like a password or something like that to get in, uh, to put it in this sort of simplest form. Um, this is a very, this is, I think still a controversial issue in the publishing world. Uh, let's say in the ebook world, let's narrow it down to that. Um, what's what's your view, uh, Bill, on on DRM? Well, let me just say that um, because I operate in lots of different spheres, um, and because frankly I'm a consultant, so I, you know I need to be very flexible, right, to adapt to the needs of a particular situation. So I am neither for nor against DRM. Commercial trade publishers absolutely are devoted to DRM because they need to make sure that their content isn't pirated, right? That's the problem with these digital files is they're, they're infinitely reproducible in perfect form, right? So once you've got one, you can make any number of copies and send them out. Nobody's paying for them, and now you've got a problem. Uh, in fact, one of the things that Bill Rosenblatt is looking at, I don't, wouldn't say working on, but he's actually chairing a session at Digital Book World about this in a, in a few weeks. Um, there's a couple of blockchain initiatives that are addressing this issue so that um, there's there's potential future there. Um, but to take the opposite uh, approach from an accessibility point of view, they absolutely hate DRM because those EPUB files that they get that otherwise should be really accessible to them, they can't even crack them open because they're protected by DRM, 
right? So they have to get a DRM-free file. So there's a whole systems in the accessibility community. Benetech is, is the leader in this with a pro, uh, service called Bookshare, where they will uh, get the content, get the books from the publishers. They've got half a million of them at this point. Um, they will provide an accessible DRM-free version to people that uh, require them, blind people, people with learning disabilities, fish, uh, cognitive and visual disabilities, et cetera. But um, print disabled was George Kirscher's term and is uh, the prevailing term for that. Um, but the, the key thing that they do is they absolutely uh, ensure that it's only distributed to people that are qualified to receive them and that they, they can't be distributed outside of that. So that's that's how that has gotten around. From a standards point of view, um, EPUB has nothing to do with DRM, and that was deliberate from the very beginning. It is neither, it, it, it neither enables nor prevents DRM. Web publishing, I guarantee you, will be the same thing. In the web world, I refer to that as the acronym that cannot speak its name, because in, in, a, in a conversation, in a, in a meeting of techies, when the subject of DRN comes up, the conversation grinds to a halt because everybody in the tech side hates DRM. Um, commercial publishers depend on it. So the standard itself is, uh, it, it has nothing to do with the DRM. And one misconception that a lot of people have is that the publishers are putting the DRM on the files. No, it's the distribute it's the, it's the distribution platform that puts the DRM on so publishers epub doesn't inherently have any DRM on it but when they send it to apple for ibooks apple puts its DRM on when they send it to amazon for kindle amazon puts its DRM on so here's the same book it's got two different DRMs well why is that cuz amazon wants you to only use the one you bought from them in their system their ecosystem same with apple same with kobo uh, etc so uh, it's really not the publishers that are putting the DRM on. It's it's the people that are selling you the book are putting the DRM on. It's not inherent in the system system at all. <clears throat> Thanks for that. Thanks for that great answer and the the way you so well articulated the the very different interests behind people's um, embrace or rejection of something like DRM and that it's it's a real it's a real issue um, and it it you know you you might get the suits in the room and the you know people who know how the computers go in the room and they might have different interests, but, but it's important yeah. whether, whether you object to the other side or not, it's important to understand deeply where they're, where they're coming from. Um, one thing on the subject of accessibility that I was just reminded of, um, was I saw a while ago, actually an old now documentary on the history of the computer, and there's this very moving scene um, when the documentary makers film a group of children who have uh, each of whom has their own disability or disabilities, and they're using these computers in various ways in order to read uh, for the yep. fir for the first time on their own. And there was something about being able to turn the page, as it were. This is in a you know on a computer, but there was you know still a, there's being just being in control of of the text it, itself was just a revelation and and a wonderful thing um and uh and there's another there's another sort of accessibility can mean a lot of different things i mean i grew up in the days before the internet i remember and you know in the in the prairies of you know canada uh in a sort of lower middle class family and i know what it was like to not have as many books to read as i wanted um now thanks to 
computers and the internet, you know, I can, I've got a lifetime of books to read just on the Gutenberg project alone. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, how did you become uh, passionate about accessibility? What did something, was there something in your life that prompted it? No, I think it was that, first of all, I saw how important it was. Um, as I'm participating in these standards groups, it's uh, the people from the accessibility community are very active participants because obviously it's in their interest for these standards to be made in a way that they're uh, that they're accessible, and that is in fact what has happened. Um, so no, I don't have any kind of personal. Uh, well, I do have lots of personal acquaintances now. I have many good friends uh, in the accessibility community. Uh, I mentioned George Kirscher, uh earlier on, and he's he's just a fabulous guy. Uh, he's uh, He's blind. He's got this wonderful dog uh, named Kroner. Uh, he comes to the conferences with with Kroner, and Kroner just crawls under the bench or under the seat. And uh, George is this amazingly brilliant and articulate guy, uh, and uh, and, a, and a sweet guy. So anyway, he's just doing. He just does everything to help make the world more accessible, uh, and I just admire that greatly. So. Uh, so, yeah, I know a lot of people that work in the area. Uh, I've become passionate about the issue, but I can't actually say that there was some kind of triggering event in my life that did it. It was just a matter of a growing realization about, wow, this is really important. We should be paying attention to this. <clears throat> yeah, I remember in one of in one of your talks, um, you describe um, in quite sort of strong terms the um, this might be better now, but the terrible situation that university accessibility departments found themselves in where they would have to like tear the spines off books uh, in order to, I think, take pictures of the pages in order to distribute them to students who needed that format for accessibility. That happens all the time to this day. This is still shockingly common. Uh, and that's something that we're doing a lot of work on. Uh, my, one of my... I mentioned my committee in the book industry study group. One of the working groups is specifically trying to address that issue, working with the, these are called DSOs, which are disability services offices or DSS offices, disability stu disabled student services offices. Most universities and colleges have a unit like this. Oftentimes it's one or two staff members and, a, and some interns. <clears throat> And oftentimes they are, I mean, I really admire these people because, they, first of all, the university is legally obligated to provide an accessible version of course materials to a student who needs them. Um, and so uh, these people in these DSOs or DSS offices um, just have to scramble to get some kind of file to work with. And if they don't get a file that they can work with, uh, they will literally go to the college bookstore, buy. Uh, Jamie Axelrod is a friend of mine. He's the just immediate past president of the AHEAD, which is a <clears throat> the national organization of these offices around the country, um, and he's head of that uh, operation at uh, Northern Arizona University. And in his talks, he'll show a slide of a guillotine. You know what a guillotine is? It's like a. Yeah. It's a. It, it's what is used to chop the spine off the books. And it's sitting right there in their office. They use it every. They don't use it every day, but it's a it's it's a daily presence, and they use it all the time. Where they have to chop the spine off the book. They then feed the pages through a scanner, and then they do OCR, which is optical character recognition, which is imperfect. 
and which doesn't capture any structure or tagging. And then they have to go through and proofread it and tag the book, et cetera. And it drives me crazy because these were all well-structured digital files that they typeset the damn book from in the first place, way upstream, and they just can't get those files. Or if they had just gotten an EPUB of that book, they'd basically be 90% of the way there. But they're, so anyway, they're doing heroic work, but it's, it's really uh, still a very messy situation. And oftentimes, so that book that gets remediated at Northern Arizona University, what are the odds that there aren't half a dozen or a dozen or more other colleges and universities doing the same thing with the same book? Because they've got a student that needs that book, right? And there's currently no, where I'm working with a group that's, well, it's, it's too formative to talk about right now, but to try to address the situation. So at least if one university remediates a book that another university needs, there's a way that they can know about that, right? But right now, it's just shockingly redundant work and shockingly manual work that just should not be happening. So yes, I'm passionate about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad and I'm sure um, uh, a lot of other people are very glad that there are people like you and people in the groups that you work with that are out there uh, trying to improve. There's this lots of people working on this. Absolutely. It is. I'm just one of the, one of many. Um, to <laughs> end, to end on a positive note. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you, published an article recently in Publishers Weekly that I mentioned earlier called The Golden Age of Publishing Technology. Uh, what, yes. what, if you could talk for a couple of minutes about um, what makes this a golden age? Well, first of all, what I said was we are approaching a golden age. I didn't say we were there yet, okay. right? <clears throat> I did that fully realizing that people will interpret it that I'm saying that there is a gold, we, we are in the golden age. And actually, the editor changed my title a little bit to imply that. And uh, that was the title. Right. Yeah. It was approaching yeah. a golden age. You don't digital. get to pick your own headlines. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Oh, but PW is just great to work with. Yeah, uh, sure. Jim Millian at, at PW is a terrific guy. Yeah. <clears throat> Changed almost nothing in my, uh, in my article. <clears throat> but what I meant by that is that, you know, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation where, uh, you know, I, I've lived through that whole uh, – history of handset type and rub on letters and phototype setting and all that kind of stuff. All that stuff was laborious and um, it got more and more automated, but even so it was using proprietary tools. And so they didn't talk to each other. Um, if you used, uh, if you, if, if you had a line of type phototype setter and you, uh, it, it, it got out of date and then you bought one from Autologic you couldn't use any of the fonts you had before. You had to buy Autologic fonts for the new typesetter, not liner type fonts, et cetera. It's just, well, I was going to say it's crazy. It's only crazy in hindsight because it was just the way the world was back then, right? But what's happened over time is that gradually, because of standards, things are getting more and more interoperable. So I mentioned that, you know, that word file that the author uh, or authors write their uh book or uh, a journal article in is a word file, but it's actually XML under the hood. And so now that's processable downstream in the, uh, in the, in the workflow. Uh, and nobody has to retype the stuff anymore. Um, that's a trivial, well, it's not a trivial, it's a significant example, but one of like hundreds of things that uh, are gradually more and more interoperable. So uh, 
I mentioned now that you know, one of my friends is Lisa McCoy Kelly from Penguin Random House. She's head of eBooks at Penguin Random House. Um, and they produce a lot of very complicated eBooks because they do that children's books and cookbooks and stuff like that. And they're to the point where they can produce one EPUB for the supply chain. And it goes out to all these different uh, retailers. Um, that's uh, a, a watershed in, in, in publishing to think that you can produce this one file and you're using tools that are um, commonly available and you're using standards that are well known. Uh, so there's tons of people that can do HTML, for example, and CSS. A lot of people know how to do those things. Another friend is, uh, is Dave Kramer at Hachette Book Group. Uh, they actually typeset all of their books. They, this is the U.S. Uh, arm of Hachette Livre. Um, they produce all of their books with uh, HTML and CSS technology. There's no actual typesetting technology other than, yes, there's a, it's called Prince XML that they're using, but it's, it, it, it's basically the same technology that makes a website or an EPUB. It's not some some different technology. Uh, his, uh, Luc Adrien uh, uh, in, in Chet Livre in France uh, has a different approach, but uh, they uh, they won an award from the Accessible Books Consortium this year uh, for, for their work. Um, and what they've done is, you know, they they publish huge, huge numbers of books. So they are a big player and they have a lot of clout in the marketplace. So they've basically mandated that their suppliers have to supply an accessible EPUB as a deliverable for every book they publish. What that does is it puts pressure upstream in the supply chain. Now there's a whole bunch of vendors that can routinely do accessible EPUBs because Hachette made them do it, basically. Right. So, you know, all of these dynamics are resulting in an ecosystem that uh, has less and less friction and fewer and fewer barriers to hand off a file from one system to another, one person to another, um, et cetera. Uh, and it's getting more and more interoperable more and more widely available and a lot of the big developments now are happening in open source so the software is even free in some of this and a lot of this stuff big big difference so i i would say that's getting pretty close to a golden age um actually to end on a low note i've got another last question for you um okay you just reminded me this about the importance of distribution streams and all the various pressures um what happens if barnes and noble goes under um well, I noticed that you said if. Yes. That's, you, you are expressing some confidence there. You didn't say when. Sorry, you probably don't want to put that in your podcast. Oh, so. no, I definitely do. I was being politic. I was being I was being diplomatic. I was yeah. being politic or diplomatic, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, to, uh, to the trade book industry, uh, to the trade book ecosystem, uh, it will be, it will have an impact, but I don't think it will have any kind of a cataclysmic impact at all. Um, they no longer are the main vehicle for publishers to sell their books. Amazon is. Um, Kobo's doing great things internationally, for example. Uh, Indigo, Waterstones is doing some good stuff, etc. So, uh, 
And actually, the independent bookstore uh, sector has uh, blossomed in the past five years or so, five or ten years. So, you know, we may we may end up thinking that this, you know, that the era of the the, the giant retailers, Borders, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, the three big Bs, was a blip, right? Uh, we may be, we may get back to a day. You can tell that I'm just an optimistic, positive person, right? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I was just born that way. So here, here's here's another golden age little element that I hadn't thought about is a, re- a really good golden age would be you can get every book you want in an instant digitally, um, but you've also got great bookstores uh, in in every town that are local bookstores. Our authors come and do their readings, right? And those bookstores know their people. So there's a bookstore in Ann Arbor. I'm, I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and, and, and there's a bookstore called Literati that I like a lot. So, you know, here I am, a publishing technology evangelist, building the standards for digital books. I still like reading print books. I just finished Lincoln in the Bardo, that uh, I bought it, liter- uh, I can't remember if I got it at Literati, autograph book, it means it means that uh, Saunders scribbled in the front of it, right? But it's just, I loved reading that, uh, the physical book. Uh, and that particular book was particularly a good one to read that way. So, you know, I, I like the idea of now uh, more specialized, idiosyncratic, personal indie bookstores all over the place, complemented by this gigantic digital infrastructure. So everything's available, uh, but uh, it isn't homogenous big box stores anymore. Well, thank you for taking my potential downer question and turning it into a positive and optimistic uh, note to end the interview on. Uh, And thank you, thank you, Bill, very much for taking the time to do this interview today and uh, during what I assume is a beautiful afternoon in Ann Arbor. It is actually a lovely afternoon. We don't always have lovely afternoons, but this one is a good one. That's all right. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Lots of fun. And boy, I have to compliment you. You do your homework. That's very impressive. (laughs) Very, very impressive. Thanks very much. Thank you.